Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nedden. So, as promised. See, I'm all about keeping the promises, right? This is all I've been saying every every episode. We're keeping <laughs> these promises. We have content from our trip to AWP, well, near AWP in Boston. That's right. Boston. Our trip to Boston. It wasn't all just parties and partying and parties. It was pretty much that. Um, did it seem did the AWP crowd seem a little less stuffy than in Chicago to you? Um, that's tough to say because like just uh, just like in Chicago, Boston, we didn't really see a lot of it. I mean, really, it was just the book uh, fair that one day that that we went to. Um, I don't know, stuffy. Yeah, you know, I I think people did seem to take themselves a little less seriously, and they did seem to be a little more punky. I think I noticed a lot more punk looking people than. Uh, mm-hmm. Than when we're in Chicago. Before we get on to talking about our experiences in Boston, can I get my last jab in at the AWP folks? Go for it. Just uh, bolt barrels, buddy. <laughs> I was reading an article today, and I apologize. I don't know who it was by. It was this morning before I had to go to work, so it was like 6 in the morning. Um, taking a shot at the entire AWP event as one big uh, like advertisement for MFA programs. Mm. Yeah. You know... Um, I think that, yeah, AWP, I think the clever people just do what we do and show up to hang out with other people because mm-hmm. they know they're going to be in town. The clever people show up to hang out with us. And that's, that's what we're going to be talking really, about. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really what I meant. <laughs> so a booked outing number, I don't know, six, five, six out of town outing. Um, the weather sucked a little bit. Um, got a little bit better towards uh, towards the end of the week. Um, but on uh, on Thursday night, we had snow, and we trudged through snow, the same snow we left from Chicago, to get to our reading. And that's what we're going to be bringing you tonight, episode one of two um, from the Manarchy Magazine um, reading. That's right. So uh, we talked about it a lot beforehand, and we you know always kind of hedge our bets and say, if the audio works out, we're going to bring you a content. Well, audio worked out. I think it sounds pretty good. And um, uh, yeah, so the, the actual event, the official title of the event was Manarchy in Boston, Fun with Perfect Edge Books and Lazy Fascist Pressed. So obviously the event was hosted by Manarchy Magazine um, and put together by Pela Villa, who is the editor-in-chief over there. Um, so all that was organized uh, by her and her lackeys, which includes, I guess, us in a way, at least in that instance. <laughs> right? Am I right? Um, did we help organize? Uh, no, really, we yeah. <laughs> we really didn't do anything. We, we I think we offered some, yeah, we offered some opinions, but otherwise, uh, we were very hands off with the organization of the event. It was in the in the capable hands of of, of Pelavia. Um, we just showed up with some recorders and um, clapped at the appropriate times. I'm gonna go one step further. I was so not involved in the setup of this that Pela at one point said, "Hey, we need someone to run and get water." And I was like, you mean like a case? And she was like, yeah. And I like was like, all right, um, maybe someone else can do it. Because that means I'd have to carry a case of water. So not only were we not involved in the planning, I did as little work as possible. Yeah. yeah. So, 
therefore not one of her lackeys. That's all I'm saying. All right. Well, you know, I was trying to sound involved, but I guess we did our part by by recording it for posterity. That is correct. So we went to the International Poster Gallery in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, very, very nice um, space uh, for a reading. I thought actually the setup was really, really great for a reading too. That little mini stage at the, at the front, which I think was just a window seat that we were using as a mini stage. Right. But a uh, very interesting place. Um, apparently they do a lot of high end. So when I say poster gallery, I want you guys to picture this. On uh, one of my walls, I have a poster of Rick Springfield. On the other one, it's Warrant, uh, Jane Lane from Warrant, um, you know, rocking out. Uh, and then I've got Kiss without the makeup on. None of these posters are available at the International Poster Gallery. I'm praying that you're joking about that. I am totally joking, but definitely not the type of posters <laughs> that are. Well, you know, so, so, well, you hear that and you think, oh, okay, maybe they have like movie posters like, you know, Star Wars. No, no, nothing like that. No black light uh, is going to help you with the posters that they're selling in this gallery. Yeah, it's a very, very artsy place, um, very high-end posters. A lot of them, um, or most of the ones that I could see, I'm obviously not an expert on this, but they all look to be um, from much older productions. And international. In different languages, it is an international poster gallery. So. That is correct. The international refers to the posters, not to its location. That's right. So. <laughs> the poster gallery is solidly in Boston. So Very nice place um, that uh, I'm sure Manarchy Magazine um, rented out. Um, as we were there after closing time, so we got to be in the gallery after that. Uh, I'm telling you, man, posters there. Like, I think the cheapest one I actually looked at price tag on was like 1,700 bucks. Yeah, the one that I feel like I almost knocked over was like over 8,000. So, <laughs> <sighs> um, so unfortunately, I don't think they sold any posters that night to to anybody at the reading. But um, we did have a we did have a great time, and we're very happy to have what I think might be our best quality audio wise um, from a reading. To bring to you yeah it was uh turned out nicely we uh it was the first time here here's the thing it was the first time that we were so concerned about making sure we get the audio that we had two different recording uh devices going mm -hmm. and so i think that the our primary one felt a little like you know insulted or or threatened mm -hmm. by by recording device number two and it stepped up its game a little bit i'm sure that's exactly what happened yeah um, I'm all also, about anthropomorphizing objects. <laughs> Another interesting thing is that um, this is also available on video if you want to see some of the readers. So, of course, listen to it here. We're going to have extra content for you um, and, you know, our own, our own commentary. Um, but if you want to get a look at these folks reading in person, you can hit Caleb J. Ross's YouTube channel. I believe it is youtube.com slash Caleb J. Ross. He broadcasts it to the world live. And then it's available um, to watch now. Got to say, he did a pretty good job of keeping up with like his little subtitles and names and stuff like that. Dude, he did it all with like plumbing. Amazing. I've never seen. I never thought you could take apart a bathroom and build like a stand for your camera. And he had another thing we saw while we were in Boston that was like a steady cam he built out of like old toilet pipes or something. Yeah, yeah. He must have gotten like a Home Depot gift card for Christmas or something. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. like everything he had was rigged up with like PVC piping and tape and stuff. So uh, Caleb has become quite the DIY uh, guy. So uh, um, kudos to him. I saw I watched a little bit of the video um, just to see what the quality was like. It was very good. And yes, he had all like these superimposed headings and titles and stuff, which was really great. Yep. All right. Are we done babbling? You want to actually get on with uh, letting them hear some stuff? Yeah, we can probably do that. Tell the folks who our first reader is. All right, coming up first uh, on the on the recording is a lazy fascist 
uh, guest for the evening, Ben Lurie, uh, who is there kind of in support of, I think he's got multiple things out, but uh, Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day is the book I believe they mentioned as being um, the one he was out there in support of. And he did a, a bit of a reading, and, and he was the one that was like, oh my god, he's been on NPR and stuff. So, uh, um, yeah, he seemed like he was kind of a big deal. Um, yes. And immediately after that, he will be followed by Michael Paul Gonzalez, um, who just published his first full-length novel, Angel Falls, with Perfect Edge Books. That is now available for purchase on Amazon. He is not reading from that in this reading, and uh, I think he'll mention to you why at the at the beginning of his at the beginning of his story. All right, and then following Michael Gonzalez was Kirsten Aileen, uh, another lazy fascist person, uh, there in support of one of her books called Unicorn Battle Squad which uh, um, is a lazy fascist publication, obviously. But she read a story that night. Um, it was about a giraffe, and it was in a very... I'm trying to think of the best way to, excri- to describe I mean, obviously, you'll hear it, but... Instructional. Um, very instructional, yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you for cutting to the chase and keeping me from blabbering too much. I will tell you that I learned a lot, and if I'm ever in uh, in care of a giraffe, I know exactly what to do. Thank you, Kirsten Aileen. <laughs> Aileen. Aileen? Aileen. Aileen, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to close out the reading portion of this episode with Cameron Pierce, um, former guest of the show, editor at Lazy Fascist Press. So I'm thinking that's how he worked his way into this reading. Um, and he reads a, a story from Die You Donut Bastards, which we discussed briefly here when we had him on uh, not that long ago. Yep. Yeah. Pretty solid uh, first half of a, of a reading, if you ask me. And our host for this reading, bet you thought we forgot, Gordon Highland. Um, guest of this show um, and he is the author of Major Inversions and Flashover and uh, he was the uh, kind of impromptu MC. I don't know, Gordon only got about an hour's notice that he was doing this so he does a terrific job here of, uh, of uh, telling us a little bit about our readers before they come on. Absolutely and I can't think of a better segue than that to get the, uh, the reading started. Alright guys, we're going to get started up here so if, we, if you want to bring your attention up this way your bodily selves and all that kind of stuff We'll get this thing going. Manarchy Magazine, uh, they're the ones who put this event together, and they're an online uh, men's and women's fiction zine, cultural things, manly stuff, you know, film, bodily hygiene, all that kind of fun stuff. And uh, that's uh, manarchymag.com. And they they and us, uh, a lot of people in this room write for the magazine on various topics and columns and whatnot, and they and us want to celebrate Perfect Edge Books and Lazy Fascist Press. And uh, they, they're the people who are going to comprise tonight's readers. We've got uh, Phil Jordan, Michael Paul Gonzalez, Caleb J. Ross, Phil Jordan, did I mention him already? <laughs> ben Lori, Cameron Pierce, and Kirsten Aileen. And before we get started with the readings, uh, Phil from Perfect Edge wants to say a few words and then we'll kick off the reading. All right, thanks. Hi. Um, one of the conditions uh, for me coming here to Boston was that I, I hype up the press, so I have to do this now. And it's on camera, so I can prove I did it. Um, I founded Perfect Edge Books uh, in late 2011 uh, with the express purpose of, uh, of promoting literary mediocrity. Um, don't take my word for it, read the, read the reviews. Uh, I, want, I, mean, I think we're going to be providing for at least four years uh, a sizable uh, amount of, um, of pretty good reads. I could have used a bit of copy editing. 
Uh, I was thinking of asking people to sign up for our newsletter so you can actually uh, uh, keep in touch, which really just means please give us your email addresses so we can market and shit at you. If, if, if you're willing, then Caleb will be taken out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll be taking email addresses, which will be lovely um, for us. <laughs> and you will get spammed about once a month with books you'll probably check out and not buy. I want to sum up some of our books. We have uh, probably about 12 titles uh, near in completion or already released. Uh, we've got three that have been released. One of them reached um, the number one uh, spot on Amazon US. That was Andres Bergen's 100 Years of Vicissitude, which uh, yes. is fantastic. Uh, and we've got a couple of other authors here in the room who will be uh, reading with me. Mike Gonzalez's book, uh, Angel Falls, uh, is fantastic. It's about Satan uh, by the man who knows. <laughs> and um, I'm going to sum up some of the other books in one sentence to really sort of sell the idea. I'll be reading from this one, What Presents Such Restraint. I wrote this. It's a Shaggy Dog story book, and you probably will get a sense of that when I read a story from it uh, tonight. This is uh, Andres Bergen's book, 100 Years of, of Vicissitude. Uh, two dead people walk around talking. That's this book. Um, <laughs> this is uh, Craig Wahlberg's book. Those of you who know him will see why this is funny. Um, the Sound of Loneliness is a, is a story of a, a young English writer in the 90s who uh, uh, tries to be a, a very good novelist but isn't very good, so writes The Sound of Loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Caleb Ross's Stranger Will. We're republishing this one. Uh, the last press went bankrupt. You, 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 the judge. <laughs> and uh, I'll be reading last, I think, tonight. But uh, thank you for coming. It's cool to be here, and it's a great excuse to get out of my house in Europe. Thank you. People here, just the readers alone. We've got people here from all the way from LA to uh, to the UK and lots of places in between. Also in the house, I want to recognize we've got book podcasts. Rob and Livius recognize <laughs> they're recording this uh, and they're going to piece it up and make a few of their episodes out of it at bookedpodcast.com. They tell you what to read, what to read. They tell me what to read, and uh, so they'll be adding their unique blend of brand of literary insanity to that. And Caleb over there, who's also one of our readers, he is live streaming this event right now on YouTube and any other place that wanted to embed it. I don't know how many sites there are, but there's a camera right there, so you might not want to bump into this little um, bench here. So that's what's going on. We want to bring up our first reader who's got another engagement here tonight. He's a popular dude. This is Ben Laurie. His uh, fables and tales have appeared in The New Yorker on NPR's This American Life. That's impressive and live at Selected Shorts. His book, Stories for Nighttime and Some for Day, which came out to Penguin in 2011, that was a selection of the Barnes Noble Discover Great New Writers Program. He lives in LA, so give him a hand. This has been Lori. Okay, I made it. That was my big fear, I conquered it already. <laughs> uh, Cameron asked me to read this, oh also, can you hear me? Not really built for this no microphone thing. Cameron asked me to read this story about James K. Polk. 
So I'm going to read a story about James K. Polk. <laughs> it's called James K. Polk. <laughs> <laughs> James K. Polk used to keep bonsai trees up on the roof of the White House. Not a lot of people know that about him, but it's an important fact. In 1845, James K. Polk had over 200 trees. Most of them were under three inches tall. One was so small, people couldn't see it. Are you sure it's there? People would say. Oh, it's there, James K. Polk would say. And the people would look at him. How's the country, they'd say. The country, he'd say. It's OK. At night, James K. Polk would lie in his bed and think about his tiniest tree. It wasn't just that it was so incredibly small. It was perfectly formed in every way. What's wrong with these people, James K. Polk would say. Why don't they appreciate my art? I've grown the best bonsai tree of all time, and they act like I'm doing something wrong. Then one night, James K. Polk had a dream. And in his dream, he went to Japan. And for some reason, everyone there had giant eyes. I bet they could see my tree, he said. So in the morning, James K. Polk started making plans. He went to see the Secretary of the Navy. I'm going to need a boat, he said, that can make it to Japan and a few of your very best men. You can't go to Japan, the Naval Secretary said. There are big issues to be dealt with here. Big issues aren't always the most important, Polk said and he put his trees in the boat and set sail. The voyage to Japan was long and arduous, and by the time they got there, most of the crew was dead. A lot of the trees had been eaten for food, and the rest had been thrown overboard. The only bonsai tree James K. Polk had left was his almost invisible one, which he'd secreted away in an inside vest pocket. It was still in perfect condition. When he set foot on the shore, James K. Polk knelt down and kissed the rocky ground. Then he looked up and saw the Japanese welcoming party coming, but they all had normal-sized eyes. It turned out that people in Japan couldn't see his tree better than anyone else. Nevertheless, they were very nice to him. They treated him with all due respect. So James K. Polk stayed. He loved life in Japan. For the first time ever, he felt at home. He took a course in calligraphy and wrote some haikus. He studied Zen. The monks said he showed promise. But back in America, trouble was brewing. The Japanese, people said, they've stolen our president. And they built an armada and mustered an army. And they sailed across the sea to get him. The Japanese lookout saw the ships coming. Don't worry, they said. We won't let them take you. They loaded their guns and lined up on the shore. And Polk saw that a great war was imminent. All right, Polk said, and he held up a hand. Let's not make a big thing about this. And he said his goodbyes and put his tree in a suitcase. And he walked up the plank into the ship. All the way back, people lectured Polk about the issues and problems of the day, about how he had to take things seriously undertake big projects, be a leader of men. So when he got back home, Polk did a lot. He took the Oregon Territory from the British, from California and Texas away from Mexico. He even fought a little war over it. 
One of the last things he did was one of the biggest. He broke ground on the Washington Monument. Everyone thought this was absolutely wonderful. It earned him the title, least known consequential president. <laughs> and at the end of four years, Polk calmly stepped down. I won't be running for a second term, he said. What? People cried. But you're a great leader. I've done everything I set out to do, Polk said. Of course, people argued, but Polk stood his ground. He stood his ground and he walked away. He still had his little invisible tree, and he didn't leave it to the Smithsonian for display. And thanks a bunch. Got to pull up my notes here. I was snapping a couple of cannons. All right. Next up, we've got uh, our friend here, Michael Paul Gonzalez. Yes, sir. Let me uh, find out some information about him. I could make something up, but yeah. Uh, he's an author. He lives in Los Angeles, and he takes photos of things very, very slowly. <laughs> he takes photos of things, and he writes about other things. His first novel, Angel Falls. I've read it. It's awesome. Uh, it's now available. It came out a little bit early uh, with the shipping stuff and whatnot printings. Uh, and it's available right now through Perfect Edge Books if it isn't temporarily sold out. I'm going to bring out Michael Paul Gonzalez, y'all. Hi. I was going to read from Angel Falls, but I'm actually going to do uh, something different. Uh, last week, I got the good news that uh, my, I'm being laid off at the end of the month from the day job. So this is a novel I started working on last year that was inspired by said shitty day job. So I thought, why not share it now? Um, okay. So last night was the office holiday party, a little morale building exercise, if you will. All you can drink and see who makes it in the next day. A new guy started today. His name is, uh, hmm, never was good with names. I look at the newbies here like the ancient Chinese did their babies. Don't name them before 100 days pass because they might not make it. Is that offensive? Is that even true? I'll look at the <laughs> Anyway, I gave him the nickel tour of our floor. Hi, my name is Sebastian. Call me boss, as in boss, but I'm not your boss. And this is the cubicle farm. And this is the break room. This is the locker room. This is the other cubicle farm. This is the office wing. These are the bathrooms. This is the other, other cubicle farm. Here's the server closet. There's the vending machines handed him off to some faceless bureaucrat from the sixth floor, the next ring of hell, where HR and paperwork and design and marketing and God knows what devour souls and shuffle papers. He wouldn't get to the seventh floor. Not today, not ever. Call it x-ray vision, but I can always spot on day one whether someone has enough spine to climb the ladder here. I gave him a friendly air pad on the shoulder, walked back to my cube, my little cell in the great hive mind, and got back to scanning documents. We've been going green and going e-business for about three years now. I wonder if we'll ever get there. So I need a break, fresh air, time to descend. Our office takes up floors four through seven in a nice high-rise on Wilshire Boulevard that used to house some of the more well-known entertainment cable channels. Uh, the three floors above ours are some kind of government office. The three below used to be an energy company or a hedge fund management group or something like that. And one of those companies that got killed by the recession. They fought pretty hard, uh, but there was a month there where it was just a steady exodus of people, cast adrift into an uncertain economy as they downsized to try to stay afloat. There's also some entertainment lobbies way up near the top of the building, and a couple of penthouses if the rumors are true, and all might as well be Everest to me, because I'll never climb so high. 
Lobby, coffee attained, time to ascend. I hit the call button on the elevator and listened to the dull roar of traffic on Wilshire outside. A lady from the high floors, the government offices, glides up and does a neat double tap on the elevator call button. She's strictly by the book, I can tell. Pencil skirt in gray, blazer in gray, crisp white shirt, sharp heels, hair down, but by no means carefree. I think of a few jokes I could toss off, you know, waiting for the elevator humor, but there's no point. She's apparently more interested in the seam of the doors in front of her than anything else. That's how we do things in Los Angeles. Do not engage, do not look around. Fine with me, I can study the seam on the back of her skirt. My eyes dance over the curves of her hip a couple times, nonchalantly. Then I check the elevator sign. It's three floors away, arriving soon. Then I can see her reflection in the elevator doors, looking right at me. They're not mirrored, but they're polished enough that you can see pretty clearly into them. Next time, she says, don't nod your head when you're staring. Kind of gives the whole thing away. Busted, just as the doors open. The back of my neck is burning. I could play it off like I wasn't looking, but why bother? She won't remember me by the end of the day. Hell, she'll forgive me before she gets to her floor. Let a couple of uncomfortable floors go by, and then try to break the tension. So, uh, what do you guys do up there? License to kill? Echelon-style phone tapping? You, uh, she's holding up a finger, listening to something on her Bluetooth. I shake my head. Another missed opportunity to make up for a blown opportunity. Bing. Try to make a non-committal glance over my shoulder as I step out, but she's got her eyes locked on the floor, finger on the headset. I wonder if she's even using the phone, if this wasn't some universal sign language if I want to ignore you without seeming rude. Ice Queen comes a voice from behind me. I turn and see a red shirt staring over the top of his cubicle at me. Management calls this area the proving ground because the new hires are all corralled here. We call it death row. He's not actually wearing a red shirt, it's more of a blue and white pinstripe number, but if you don't get the joke, I'm not explaining it to you. Google it. Anyway, this happens on an almost daily basis, some earnest face popping out from the cubes trying to make human contact with we, the survivors. I usually keep walking, but I can't pay that kind of treatment forward. First day, I ask? He smirks. Is it yours? Nah, I'm over in production, I lie. Yeah, don't worry, this is just a test. Give it another couple weeks of trying hard, and you'll be out of this hell pit and into the inferno with the rest of us. That would be a shame, he says. Kind of a step down from management. If this were any other job, my stomach would have bottomed out just now, but there's hundreds of us buzzing around here. All I need to do is get to a cube farm down the hall, and I'll lose him. Well, don't let me keep you from getting back to the grind, he says. I'll be visiting production later this afternoon when I finish over an IT. Shit. I'm IT. Sounds great. Uh, cursory glance reveals the fucker's not wearing a name badge. Why would he? He's management. Well, back to the inferno, right? I shoot him gun fingers and make a quick pivot as I continue down the hall. I can feel his eyes burning through the back of my skull as I walk away. I'll do my best to be invisible when he makes his presence known in our neck of the woods. If I was better with names and faces, this might not be a problem. People are just one massive blur to me, especially at the office. If you have a personality, I'll remember you. But everyone here, they're just focused on moving papers, meeting goals, keeping their heads down. The young guys all trend towards white shirts and ties so they look like Mormon missionaries. The old guys have ill-fitting shirts, and their last desperate attempts at hairstyles as the ecosystems on their skulls recede and die. The women are all a combination of cardigans and pantsuits and pencil skirts and glasses. I give people nicknames once they start to stand out to me. And I remember if, uh, guys if I need to interact with them on a daily basis, like Fax and Jackson, or uh, people that uh, annoy me, like Fragrant Error, who misspells every memo she writes me and smells like she sleeps under a pile of fashion magazines. Stand out, earn a nickname, blend in with the herd, and you're a red shirt. They're coming for our heads. Start every day on high alert, and you get an adjective like Angry Paul. He's in short sleeves today, his temples throbbing, eyes way too intense. 
corporate is sending hired muscle around today to intimidate us. They said this to stat collecting for the investor review next week, but ask yourself this, why would they need to, I just saw the guy over by the elevators, I cut him off hoping to avoid an all afternoon diatribe. Was he black? Seriously, Paul? These things matter, Sebastian. To who? It's all about the face they're trying to put forward as a corporation. Our hiring rate, on average, is below what people would deem an acceptable blending of he is white. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Paul slumps back against his desk. He catches me staring and puffs up a bit. I'm not racist, okay? I just, I have a nervous reaction around, I, I sweat my upper lip, and, and they would clearly be combining this exercise with some kind of test to see who remembers the diversity training we all had to, I need to get back to my scanning, Paul. I'm not racist, he shouts after me. Of course you are, Paul. You hate the entire human race. <laughs> Thank you. That's Michael Paul Gonzalez. He's losing his job, so buy his book, damn it. Angel Falls. Supported. Uh, next up, we have our first and only lady of the evening here to class up the joint. Uh, Kirsten Aileen is the author of Unicorn Battle Squad. That'll stick with you, right? Unicorn Battle Squad and Love in the Time of Dinosaurs. She lives in Portland, Oregon. Come on up, Kirsten. Ah, Kirsten, sorry, I'll talk to you. Thank you. Kirsten Aileen, 
from Portland. Also from Portland, someone that she may know intimately. I'm just guessing. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, he is the head editor of Lazy Fascist Press, one of the people that we are here to celebrate tonight. Cameron Pierce. He's the author of eight books. Most recently, Die You Donut Bastards. Is that the right inflection? Is that okay? Die You Donut Bastards. Um, he lives in Portland, and you know he's the uh, editor of uh, Lazy Fascist Press. Cameron Pierce. How many of you have seen Human Centipede or Human Centipede 2? <laughs> Some of you. How many of you read Tao Lin? Anything by Tao Lin? Okay, about the same amount. <laughs> One night I watched Human Centipede 2 and I thought it was the worst piece of garbage I had ever seen. And I was tempted to go on Facebook and, and say Human Centipede 2 is the worst piece of garbage I've ever seen. But instead I decided to try to rewrite the movie in the style of talent. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is the Human Centipede 2 UC sequence, uh, UC is uh, Unfit for Social Interaction, by Taolin, a novel. <laughs> Martin watches the Human Centipede first sequence on his computer then drives to the parking garage. He sits in a tiny booth and stares at the security monitor. The screen is split four ways. A 20-something couple walks into the upper right square. They appear to be arguing or something. Martin picks up his tire iron and goes down to the garage. He stands behind a concrete pillar so the boy and the girl cannot see him. We are so fucked, the boy says to the girl. Are we fucked, the girl says. We are so existentially fucked. <laughs> we'll get the spare key and come back tomorrow, the girl says. The boy pulls out his iPhone. He takes a picture of himself. What are you doing, the girl says. I am taking a picture of myself and posting the picture on Tumblr so people remember what I looked like before my father mutilated me. This car is his life. Isn't that a line from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the girl says? <laughs> Maybe my book sales will go up after my father mutilates me. I will be a national tragedy. Martin emerges from behind the pillar. The girl looks at Martin. Martin hits her in the head with the tire iron. She falls to the ground. The boy's facial expression alternates between fear, anger, and sadness. He looks like the singer of Death Cab for Cutie. <laughs> Martin pulls the gun out from the waistband of his sweatpants and shoots the boy in the foot. You fucking asshole, the boy says. Martin stares at the bleeding foot of the boy as if it is a G-chat message from someone he doesn't like. <laughs> Martin doesn't like a lot of people. This is why he wants to build a human centipede. He takes the hands, feet, and mouth of the boy and girl and puts them in the back of his rapist van. He drives to a desolate part of town and parks in front of a warehouse. Martin gets out of the van. A man who looks like Moby smokes a cigarette in front of the warehouse. The man flicks his cigarette butt and says, hey, let's make this quick. Inside the warehouse, Martin gets emotional. He feels a vague surge of something like hope. He is depressed, lonely, and obese, but there is hope. Let's get the fucking lease signed, says the man who looks like Moby. <laughs> Martin imagines his 12-person centipede crawling across the warehouse floor. He grins at the image of his grand achievement. Are you a goddamn retard? Let's sign the lease, the landlord says. Martin does not like being called a retard. He shoots the landlord in the kneecap, feeling 6% closer to success. <laughs> he leaves the boy and the girl and the landlord bound and gagged on the floor of the warehouse. Now if only he can murder nine more people. He goes home. 
After feeding his pet centipede, he sits on the edge of the bed in his underwear and stares down at his bulbous gut. There's a lonely planet inside of me, he thinks. He considers driving to the hardware store, getting a chainsaw, and ending it all right there in the store, just ending it. His mom shuffles into his room. The doctor is here to see you, she says. She stares at Martin's computer with disdain and a high level of unease. Martin's mom believes computers are satanic. Martin stares at her until she goes away. <laughs> In the living room, Martin sits mostly naked on the couch beside the Jewish doctor who looks like a decrepit, bearded John Lennon. Every man looks like a famous musician to Martin. It's because his father molested him. <laughs> Here are your pills, the doctor says, handing a bag to Martin. He's doing worse, his mother says. She stands on the opposite side of the room, near the tank holding Martin's centipede. He won't shut up about a 12-person centipede, she says. A centipede, yes, the doctor says, rubbing Martin's naked thigh in a sexual manner. Centipedes can be a phallic symbol. Martin is expressing grief about what his father did to him. Because of you, my husband is in prison, Martin's mother shouts at Martin. Some victims of sexual abuse mutilate their genitals, the doctor says. His, he works his hand further up Martin's thigh. The doctor leaves. Martin and his mom eat dinner. Bad techno plays loudly in the upstairs apartment. Martin's mom stands on a chair and bangs on the ceiling with a broom. A few minutes later, there is a knock on the front door. His mom leaves the kitchen and returns with the upstairs neighbor, a buff, tattooed skinhead. He looks like the guitarist of a metal band whose name Martin fails to recall. He's the one, his mother says. He hates your music. You've got a problem with my music, the skinhead says. Martin continues eating his pork and beans. He does not have a problem with this man's music. He has a problem with humanity. <laughs> the skinhead throws the flimsy kitchen table aside. He punches Martin in the face. Do something. Be a man like your father, his mother says. Martin falls out of his chair. The skinhead kicks him repeatedly. The skinhead says, don't ever bang on that ceiling again. You hear me, you fat fuck? When the skinhead leaves, Martin's mom says, I'm going to kill us both. Martin goes to his room. He thinks about dying while watching the human centipede first sequence on repeat until he falls asleep. The next day, Martin goes to work. He calls the agent of Ashlyn Yenny, star of the human centipede first sequence. The phone rings twice, then goes to voicemail. Martin says, this is Quentin Tarantino. I want Ashlyn Yenny to star in my new movie. Can we arrange an audition this week? Okay, have a nice day. Bye bye now. It is the first time Martin has spoken in months. He feels a little bit better, but not by much. Thank you. All right, a man who looks like Cameron Pierce. <laughs> Just like him, I swear. I read Talon, and I think you nailed his style exactly. And in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if he took your story and then like reprinted it under his own name by you. That's something that he would do while taking lots of um, uh, drugs. Uh, I'm just guessing, actually, way off on that. And that is the conclusion of part one of the reading. Don't go anywhere just yet, because we have a little bonus content for you, as promised. See, as promised. Um, working backwards, that was Cameron Pierce, Kirsten Aileen, Michael Paul Gonzalez, and Ben Lurie. Um, three of those readers representing Lazy Fascist Press. Michael Paul Gonzalez representing Perfect Edge. That's right. And... Um... Just as a little bit of a bonus, a little extra, we actually got Michael to spend just a few minutes uh, talking with us about, um, you know, his book Angel Falls and Perfect Edge in general and stuff like that. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna give that to you right now.
Hey, Michael, thanks for coming back on and uh, taking a few minutes to catch up after the reading. Hey, no problem. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to start by saying congratulations on your release of Angel Falls. Thank you very much. Now, Phil wasn't very specific um, at, at the top of the reading there about the plot. Would you like to tell uh, the book listeners a little bit about Angel Falls? Um, yeah, Angel Falls is basically about Satan uh, being tasked with doing mergers and acquisitions in the underworld. So it kind of works on the assumption that uh, every religion that's ever existed is, you know, fully true and correct. And uh, the major religions of our day today um, have obviously superseded the old religion. So he's basically taking over all of the afterlives of uh, other religions. So he's kind of turning hell into this theme park of sorts um when another ancient god basically awakens uh and finds a loophole that might allow him to get into heaven assassinate god and basically take over the universe and all of creation so satan is the only person who can save god uh and you know so he basically has to put aside his own personal grudges and his own goal of you know assuming the thr throne of heaven uh, to stop this other guy from doing it. So basically what you're saying is you took great care not to offend anybody when you wrote this book. Exactly, yes. <laughs> it's a very, uh, yeah, very respectful. Uh, yeah, it's, it gets a little tongue-in-cheek. You know, it might, it might make some people upset. Um, that might be part of the plan. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's all, you know, done from the perspective of a fun action movie, so it's not, um, hopefully, not too offensive. So it's being released, Angel Falls is being released on Perfect Edge. Um, this reading was hosted, you know, or uh, featured, not, it was hosted by Manarchy Magazine, uh, but featured authors from Perfect Edge and Lazy Fascist. So what would, how has your experience with Perfect Edge been so far? Uh, it has been fantastic. I mean, you couldn't really ask for more from a, you know, from a small press in terms of uh, willingness to work with authors and very... Um, transparent with everything that happens so you know when they when they take you on it's it's very um assembly line but in the in the best possible kind of way um so and i don't want to make it sound like they're uncaring because they obviously care about all of their authors but it's very um you know here's what's going to happen here's what we need from you and it just kind of you know they let you know every goalpost along the way uh what what's happening and what needs to happen next and and uh you know guiding you through the process of seeing your book go from manuscript to uh to finished form so yeah it's uh it's been fantastic so far and uh, a lot of exciting things on the horizon with them as well in terms of um you know events and things coming up for not only me but other perfect edge authors with blog tours and readings and all kinds of craziness. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm excited so far and looking forward to more. All right. So you had previously published, as we discussed on uh, on our podcast, LA at a thousand words. Um, how does it differ from publisher to being published by someone else? Uh, it's it's great um, in terms of uh, <laughs> you know all I have to do is is you know worry about what I wrote and you know. Um, it's a lot nicer than, than trying to shepherd, you know, dozens plus of other authors and making sure that they look good, you know, so the pressure's kind of off because I know what I want my story to do and, you know, it's up to somebody else to get it, you know, into physical form and Kindle form and out into the world and publicized. So, 
um, it's kind of nice, you know, being uh, being being Miss Daisy instead of being the driver to uh, <laughs> to, to, to stay on the non-offensive uh, themes here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we kind of understand a little bit what you're feeling. Uh, I mean, yeah, I can imagine. The, the tougher side, not the not the nicer side. Uh, so, um, speaking of projects and stuff that you have, uh, what uh, what kind of stuff can we look forward to seeing soon from you? Well, yeah, we've got aside from Angel Falls, um, Thunderdome Press is moving forward with our second anthology, uh, print anthology, um, which is called Cipher Sisters, um, which is. Uh, inspired by true events of uh, twin sisters that were found um, basically dead of old age inside of a house um, and nobody could find out anything about them. They didn't know, you know, really aside from names, they didn't know who their relatives were or or what they did. And um, we kind of started with that premise and had our authors, you know, imagine events from their lives so that the, the, the short stories are not related, but, you know, as a whole, the book kind of becomes a, a, a speculative fiction as to, you know, who they were and uh, and what their lives were like. And it's very wildly different tales all throughout. So it's, it's going to be pretty fun. Um, we also later in the year will have our uh, next print anthology, which is uh, stories all about mixed martial arts, um, and that is going to be a major pain in my butt to put together because <laughs> I'm trying to um, beyond the stories that are there. I'm trying to wrangle um, actual fighters and coaches uh, to get some interviews and inside perspective on the sport. So that's going to be a really cool collection. Um, but I'll you know save talking about that for later on when it's uh, when it's closer to fruition funny that you mentioned the whole it's going to be a pain in the butt because of uh wrangling all the people and stuff like that it's uh, uh, something that you don't think about but it's those little details that you think are so fascinating that can enhance a enhance a project like that that end up being so time consuming and like you have to it seems like you must have to like weigh their value versus like the time that goes into it right yeah pretty much and it's it's hard um you know, to figure out who, you know, how much time to spend chasing the big names versus, you know, I know there's some other people I can land that aren't as big right now and, you know, in the fight world, um, but who obviously, you know, you want to get the big names on the cover of the book, (laughs) but, you know, the the valuable content that's inside uh, will also come from people who are just uh, kind of down there in the, in the trenches still working to get recognized. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a lot of work. Um, and I didn't want to get too long-winded, but, you know, I also will have a short story coming out in this amazing uh, book anthology. <laughs> and I just realized that I, I've uh, I've lied because I called it a short story. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, long-winded was a good description. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have an epic tale uh, coming out in the book anthology, which I'm very, very excited about. Spoil spoiler alert, um, Rob. If I'm not mistaken, it is the longest story in the book anthology. It is the longest story in the book anthology. It might be the longest story in anthology history. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it is really flirting with like I don't know about novella, but like isn't novelettes a little bit on the shorter side? Uh, I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah, <laughs> but uh... one of those uh, hardly used uh, words it probably describes it well. It's kind of hefty. Yeah, but it's it's 
you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully worth the ride. I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like it's <laughs> a slog. I think people will enjoy it. I hope. <laughs> oh, you can let us talk up that story and that anthology. We'll take care of all of that for you. Sounds good. <laughs> Michael, thanks for taking the time to come on and talk to us uh, this evening and best of luck with Angel Falls and Cypher Sisters. Thank you so much. All right, and once more, that was Michael Paul Gonzalez. Uh, he joined us for a few minutes to talk about Angel Falls and Perfect Edge Books and uh, the reading and stuff like that. Yep. just want to extend a big thank you to Manarchy Magazine and Pay La Via for, uh, for hosting this and for allowing us to, to be there for our invitation. Um, and thanks to all the readers and Perfect Edge Books and Lazy Fascist Press for, for allowing us to record this and, uh, and be able to bring you some great content that we were very lucky to be a part of while we were in Boston. That's right. And um, as always, because I'm so dutiful, um, we're going to have links to Manarchy Magazine, Perfect Edge Books, Lazy Fascist, um, and we'll try and get you links over to some of that video content that Caleb had as well. Um, I've noticed that in the past, I've usually it's the thing that I make a promise I'm going to have a link to in the post that I actually don't link to. So I just made a promise I'd link to a bunch of stuff, so hopefully at least most of it will be there. And we know who the promise keeper is in this relationship, buddy. Yeah, well, you start doing all the posts. Oh, no, we'll no, it's okay. I'll take back what I said. That's all right. <laughs> I thought that might be the response. <laughs> Um, as, as we decided in Boston, you do all the heavy lifting. I just pointed a lot of things. That's right. So, um, so we're not sure exactly what episode you're going to get next because we are going to get back to reviewing books very, very shortly. But we do promise, again, that there will be at least three more readers from this reading. Um, and let's go ahead and tell the folks who they are. It's Caleb J. Ross, Brian Allen Carr, who was a surprise guest, and uh, Phil Jordan uh, from Perfect Edge himself. So, plus some bonus content we're working on. That's really what the holdup is at this point, why you're not getting these back-to-back. That's right. All right, so until next time, whether it's a reading or it's a book, uh, that's going to do it for now. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. Keep reading.